Welcome to the Korean American Parenting Podcast, where we share the idiosyncrasies, struggles, joys, and pains of being a Korean American parent, not just Korean or American, navigating the unique cross cultural challenges of parenthood. I'm Jerry. And I'm Jang. Join us each week as we chat with fellow parents and parenting experts about topics like academics, health, both physical and mental, and culture. And of course, how current events such as COVID has impacted all our lives in numerous ways. Our hope is that through these conversations, we'll grow together as confident Korean American parents raising confident Korean American children. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at Korean American Parenting. And be sure to share this with a fellow parent if you find the show helpful. Thanks again for tuning in. And here now is this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to Korean American Parenting Podcast. Um, it's Jang Cho. Um, today, I'm going to be the host by myself, um, which has been a little bit disastrous, but uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, but um, this month of March, we're talking a lot about elementary school children and middle school children. Um, as we had talked a little bit about little kids uh, in the month of February. So today, I'm very excited um, to have a guest that is also a child psychologist um, and a mom and also happens to be my college um, friend, I guess. <laughs> we barely knew each other, but apparently we were in the same class. Um, so now I get to reunite with her. Um, so today we have um, Dr. Angela King. Um, She's a Korean American mother of two and a clinical psychologist with best clinical experience in working with children. Um, and um, I wanted her to come out today to talk about, uh, well, her work too, but also her work with elementary and middle school kids and especially in this era of COVID-19. Welcome, Angela. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so it's uh, it's very interesting because we uh, apparently we didn't realize until later that we uh, we were in the same class um, and probably share some <laughs> share some acquaintances <laughs> along the way. Um, but I'm glad to reunite um, for our guests. Usually, we like to have you tell us about yourself and your family and work a little. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I am a Korean American psychologist. Um, I've been practicing for over 10 years as a psychologist in New York. Um, I'm licensed in New York and New Jersey. And uh, I was working at Montefiore Medical Center in a school-based um, clinic with elementary school kids for about the past, I guess, over 10 years. And I recently left that job and moved into full-time private practice. Um, I have an office in New York City as well as Westchester, where I live with my husband and two kids. They're two and four. Um, and so I'm excited to uh, share kind of what I've learned working with young kids, um, which I continue to see in my practice now, but I also see adults and parents and families and couples. So I'm excited to be here today. Thank you. No, thank you. So, uh, you know, before we talk about the kids stuff, I want to kind of go over, um, you know, uh, your work as a child psychologist, because I think sometimes people, mental health is such a difficult um Thing to navigate for most people, even for some physicians. Um, and a lot of times people get confused about like, you know, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, like what is all of this? And um, and I can tell you that sometimes, Jerry, 
confuses. <laughs> um, um, but um, tell me a little bit about um, your work as a child psychologist, but why you came into that work and um, it, um, and what is the difference between psychologists and other therapists as well? Um, and, you know, um, why children as well? Sure. So I um, kind of, I always wanted to go into like a helping profession. I thought I would be a teacher for a really long time. I actually thought I would be a news reporter and I was very interested in journalism and did like internships uh, at a radio station where they actually got my name wrong, which is probably why I decided not oh, to go into. Oh, they got your into, name wrong? Yeah, How can they, you get your name wrong? They were like, I was, yeah, no, I was like on, I did like a short little news story on the radio and they're like, and that was Angela King from Pennsylvania. And so, so after that, I was like, okay, maybe, you know, journalism isn't for me, but I, I loved like hearing people's stories and like, you know, just capturing kind of the experience of people. And I think that that actually translates really well to psychology where you're really just learning about people's stories and helping them navigate that. Um, and so I fell into that kind of in college. I was, um, you know, always interested in like the social sciences and learned about psychology and felt like it was a good fit as far as like helping me to, you know, sort of connect with people and hear their stories. Um, and then I was always interested in working with kids. And so it was a really good avenue to be able to like work with kids and parents and help them navigate their struggles. Um, as far as my background, yeah, I think, you know, even sometimes like my parents would get confused about like, wait, what's the difference between this and that? But, um, you know, as a psychologist, you know, so it's a doctorate in philosophy. So it's not a medical degree. So I can't prescribe medication. Um, we don't, we, we understand that part, but really our source of healing is through like really talk therapy. Um, so, you know, similar to counseling, but maybe more intense um, training as far as like working with clients and really understanding kind of a holistic perspective of, of, you know, who they are. And I've always wanted to work with kids, um, particularly like Asian American clients as well, because that was part of what drew me to psychology. I really wanted to help, you know, Asian American and other sort of cultural, culturally diverse populations with issues around acculturation and stress and intergenerational conflict with parents. And so that sort of brought me uh, here into the field. You know, I can totally, um, resonate with your, you know, um, reasons why you were <clears throat> attracted to being a psychologist, because I do love hearing people's stories. Um, I think the stories are what makes up a person in a way, because um, your own narrative is what's going to form you throughout. And, and I feel like as a psychiatrist too, like my job is to help them form that narrative of their lives so they can make a sense out of what's happened to them and what will happen to them. So yeah, no, I totally agree with you and that um, that's what drew me into this field as well. Yeah. Um, but it's very interesting because even as a psych psychologist and a child psychologist, I think um, only very few people work in a kind of a school setting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and uh, were there any challenges and reward, uh, anything rewarding about, uh, you know, working in that setting and working with that age set, uh, age group of children? Right. So, yeah, so I got, I mean, it's such a privilege actually to be able to work mm -hmm. in a school because, um, you really get to see kids like in their most natural elements 
you really get to work very closely with their teachers and school officials and guidance counselors, and you can see them interacting with their peers and and kind of like intervene in a very in, in a way that you can have a lot more um, direct impact on them than if you're just working with them in an isolated setting, like you know, in an outpatient clinic. So that was really great. I feel like I, I saw so much about what kids experience, you know, academically, emotionally, socially. Um, and then I can become involved in, in a way that I just normally wouldn't. I think the biggest challenge, I mean, I happen to work in a, in a clinic in the Bronx with really underprivileged kids, mostly from, you know, Black and Latino families, immigrant populations. And so they were, you know, obviously experiencing a lot of stressors. And so that was definitely challenging as sometimes, you know, before even getting into therapy with them, you're just kind of helping them with making sure they have food to eat or housing or health care. And so like we can't even get into really like the therapeutic work sometimes until you're helping them with just these concrete needs that they have. So it's definitely very challenging, but it was also just really rewarding to feel like you can connect with these families and impact them in a way that, you know, you may not be able to with other populations. Yeah, no, I think that it's uh, kind of eye-opening when you're in that situation because, I mean, I think personally I was never, um, I was sheltered growing up and then seeing what these kids go through, I think it really opens eyes up to like what's out there and what we can do to help them to make the better world, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. So then tell me about your transition to private yeah. practice. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been great. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different population I think that I'm working with. Cause again, I was working with a lot of um, underserved populations in the Bronx. Now I'm working in private practice. So I see a lot of adults, um, some kids, but not as much, but adults, I see couples, um, you know, and usually they are maybe more privileged in ways that, you know, my population in the Bronx was. Um, but, you know, I, ultimately people are struggling with the same type of, you know, issues. I think emotional distress and like really struggling with the pandemic and and navigating relationships. And so it's, it's different, but, at, you know, you feel like you can still help them and it's rewarding and it's been great, I think, just having the flexibility to kind of create your own practice and design it the way that you want it to, to be. Yeah, no, I think, um, and you also have two little kids. So yeah. it's also um, a, a good transition for you to be able to have a little bit of ownership of your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I was very like a 7.30 to 3.30 job. Every time I had to take some time off, I'd have to like put a request to my manager. Like, you know, so this is nice. I can just schedule how I want. I can you know, find clients that really fit with me and work with them. Um, so it's, it's, it's a nice kind of uh, a shift, I think. Yeah, welcome to the new era for your for your work. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a um, transition for sure, though. Yeah, yeah, but a good one, you know, change is yeah. good once you, you know, sometimes you just have to take that leap and take a risk. I, I'm sure that a lot of the parents that are listening today had that kind of leap especially in the past year, I think there's a lot of tr transitions and not just like concretely work and home situations, but also like perspective change shifts um, to the COVID, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, right. Just perspective changing in terms of like what's important, right. And what you're going to focus your energy on, right. What your expectations for your kids, right. 
Yeah, yeah. I always say that my my expectation for my child uh, and and me as a mother has gone down. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I'm like I'm surviving. Like Disney movie a day is what we're doing for the right. past three hundred days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think it's like surviving versus thriving, right? I think the goal for this year was just surviving, not necessarily thriving. So let's uh, you know talking about surviving and thriving. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about like issues that are. Um, important to elementary and middle school kids. Um, you know, one of the things that I really, really like to talk about with the psychologist, um, a child psychologist at that, is um, how to help elementary school age kids to develop more social emotional skills. I think this is like the one of the most important topic as a mom for myself um, to for my child, um, but also I think this is definitely a big, uh, one of the big, it should be the most important topic um, for most parents. Um, but also to me, I think it's also one of the most difficult tasks um, mm-hmm. as an Asian American parent, because sometimes we don't have the tool. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think, um, you know, just even in my practice this year, I get so many calls and concerns from parents who are worried about their children's academic, right? Like they're really, they're not doing well this year. They're struggling with remote learning. And I think that that's important, but something that really often gets lost, I think, in parenting is that social emotional piece that you're talking about. And that's really something I saw a lot in my work in the, you know, in the Bronx with the kids is that, um, that's the piece that doesn't often get nurtured by school. And it's oft, it's the piece that often I think gets missed from parents because especially with Asian parents, right? There's such a push for do well in school, get perfect grades. But, you know, I've really thought about this sort of personally for myself and for my own kids in terms of reflecting like what I want them most to learn, um, you know, when they're like 20, 21 years old and they're no longer in the house, like what's most important. And I think, the two biggest things I've, I've really come to see that, you know, is important for them to have is one empathy, you know, for other people to understand other people's perspectives and their struggles and to feel kind of that connection with people um, and also appreciating what they have. Um, and two, resilience, which I think is just um, giving them the tools and faith and confidence to be able to navigate whatever comes their way. Because I know as a parent, I always want to jump in and fix the problems, you know, and they're two and four. So like I often have to, right. But, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, like I'm not going to be able to do that. But the biggest thing I can give them is a sense of resilience that they can navigate whatever happens to them in life, whatever difficult things come their way. I think that if they have empathy and resilience, they can really sort of survive whatever happens to them, um, whether or not I'm here for them. And so that's Uh, really kind of what I've come to appreciate. I mean, empathy and resilience, I think those are like, you hit like the nail on the head for both of them. Um, And, and I I think those are uh, also the topics that are being talked about a lot these days. Um, But, you know, talking about empathy, one of the things um, that really um, I thought about a lot because we, you know, I have this like Ask Dr. Cho episode uh, every month and um, and many people ask this question in a very different ways, but 
at the end of it all, at the bottom line, a lot of the Asian or Korean American parents, what they asked was, you know, I really want to um, uh, let my children learn and grow their empathy for others, but I never learned how to do that myself. So how do I teach my child to do that when I don't know how to do it? And, and I was never taught by my, my own parents. And, it, and it, it's, it's so striking to me that um, so many people have asked this question. Um, and uh, well, number one, I feel like it's really great that they're thinking about it. But number two is like, I do feel um, sad that there aren't that many toolkits for our, our parents to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's about like, listen, we haven't, I mean, I, as a parent, I'm not like achieved full empathy for people either. Right. It's like a work (laughs) in progress that like, I'm always like working on myself. And so I think it's important as parents just to participate with your kids in these process of learning. Right. So your child doesn't expect to have full, expect you to have full resilience or full empathy, but it's just about you guys going on this journey together to, to experience it. And so something simple is like, you know, and I, I kind of reflect on how did I learn it, but things like, you know, if, if church is important to you, right. I mean, that's a place where you and your child can go and there's a lot of ways in which you can serve others or you learn about other people's struggles and how to help them and, and sort of, you know, the basic, I think, foundation of empathy, right. Or within your community, if there are, you know, just opportunities to give, whether it's just like donating something or if there's like a food drive and you're participating in it, but it's something that you can learn with your child. It's not something that you need to have mastered on your own. This is a process that you guys are kind of experiencing together to learn about this and like talking about it. I think it's also simple things like my son, you know, today was like, mom, like, why do some people only have one leg? I don't really know where he learned that from because he's four. So he really hasn't seen it, but he heard it somewhere, learned somewhere. But it's even like conversations like that. Like, yeah, some people were born with just one leg, something happened to them or they got hurt and they have, they only have one leg, you know, like people are very different. This is why you can like help them. So like even small conversations like that, I think begin to sow that seed of empathy. Um, But it's just a process I think that you can go through with your child. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm the same way, like, that sometimes I, and when I'm, like, hassled and uh, I'm stressed, like, I, I don't have that empathy piece for my child and my husband either, so I have to, like, take it and breathe in, but um, it, to me, that teaches me, like, I need to be in a better place mentally in order to be able to model that behavior, um, so... I always think about, and, and and this is for myself, like I always think about like that, like when you're on an airplane and mm-hmm. you know it's going down, like put your own air mask first on. And like, so I try to really take care of my mental health first um, and so that I can help my child when she's like having a tantrum or she's having a problem, um, you know, having a meltdown. And I think that's so important for most parents because we don't usually always talk think about ourselves first right right and I think right so an empathy comes I think from acknowledging and understanding your own feelings and your child's feelings and then broadening that to other people's feelings so I think that that's really a good point that like we as parents also need to be aware of our feelings help help model that for our kids right and be aware of their feelings. And then we can start to have conversations about 
other people's feelings and experiences. So it's like a step-by-step process, I think, that you have to keep all those things in mind. Yeah, and I want to also add, like, you can, you can, you can, you know, lose it once in a while and yeah. tell it your child, as long as you apologize later. Right, 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 right. And, and it's like reflect to them, right, that mom was feeling really frustrated. I'm sorry, I was impatient with you. And then that's actually like a really great learning experience. Yeah, no, I think um, I read somewhere that um, uh, apologizing to your child is important. And I, you know, theoretically, I was like, yeah, that's really important. The other day I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, my own mother, the first time she's ever apologized to me, I was 38 years old. (laughs) So she was 38 years into her own motherhood (laughs) to be able to do that. So I think I'm way ahead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, but it's true, right? And then it also helps kids like under practice like self-compassion too right so if if we can be kinder to ourselves our kids can also internalize that they can be kinder to themselves they can be kinder to other people like it all extends I think but it's yeah it starts with ourselves and I think that uh that empathy piece and like learning about themselves I think uh really also overlaps with building resilience Mm -hmm. um because you have to believe in yourself first um, to be able to be resilient and, you know, take a go at it even when things don't go as well. Um, if you don't have that, like, basis of, like, I am a loving, loved person in general, mm-hmm. even by myself, right, mm-hmm. um, then resilience is hard to come by. Right, right. And if I don't have those um, connections with people, right, if I, if I have empathy, I can connect with people. It also means that when things get hard, there's a support system out there for me, right? Mm-hmm. That I can handle it on my own and with other people. So then how do we grow re- resilience? I think, <laughs> I think this is the hardest part for me personally as a parent and also for a lot of other parents. Like our natural instinct is to always jump in and fix things for them, right? Yes, like I have a tendency to be the helicopter <laughs> or br- bulldozer mother. Yeah. And that's like the fastest, like it's the fastest way. It's most efficient way. It's like, if you see them struggling, you just want to jump in. And I think that's where it's like from a very young age, if we can start to just kind of pull ourselves back a little bit and like, let them try and let them make mistakes. And always like when they make mistakes, like just emphasizing like the part of it's okay, right? You can, you can keep trying this, you can get through it. and that's really hard with bullying too. I think, you know, as we talk about, like our instinct is always to go in and like fix or, you know, talk to the teacher, stop the bullying. And that's important. But I think it's also like, how do we give the kids the tools, our kids the tools to actually like stand up to the bully themselves or advocate for themselves. So I think it's just really hard for us to kind of step back, but we have to let go and give our, our kids the, the tools to be able to navigate these problems that are going to happen throughout their life, not just bullying, but other ways of, you know, oppression or just being marginalized. And so I think, you know, intervening when necessary, right? But I think then teaching our kids, how do you stand up to somebody who bullies you? What do you say? What kind of stance do you take? How do you go find friends to help, you know, be your ally? Who do you go to to talk to about that? Who, you know, how do you approach the teacher? So literally like going through those steps and making sure they know what to do and they have the skills to be able to to do it. In addition to us having to step in if necessary to actually 
on the back end, kind of talk it over with school or the parent. So, but I think the missing piece is that often parents do not give the kids the skills. And so then it just reinforces the idea that like, my parent is going to fix my problems for me. And then here we are, they're 24 and they're looking to you still to fix problems, right? So I think if we want to teach them resilience, we have to give them tools and strategies. Yeah, more pressure to parents. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think these are really important topics that we do have to think about like ahead of time so that, you know, when um, kids, if the kids actually get in uh, these these situations, you don't catch yourself um, being surprised. Um, Unfortunately, I think that's part of parenting where, you know, you're anticipating a lot of things. I mean, I think I, I think it's like similar to like when my, I know that my child is gonna ask me like, how are the babies born, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, like things like that. So I, th- I think that's actually really helpful. Um, you know, I, I, I know I'm, I keep on asking all these questions, but um, there are so many like good topics that are so difficult. Um, and for elementary school and middle school kids, I think um, one of the things, another question that I get a lot is uh, technology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. screen timing. And I think it's really hard right now, especially right. with pandemic and virtual school and like all kids are on Zoom all the time and I'm on Zoom all the time, right? Um, but tell me a little bit about like, you know, like I have a lot of parents ask me, well, what do I do with screen time? Um, do I completely cut it out? Do I uh, not? Um, and, 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 you know, elementary and middle school is when the kids start asking for phones too, mm-hmm, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, in our, in child psychiatry realm, we, every year there is a, um, a, you know, presentation on all the apps. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because we are old and we don't know the apps and we right. have to know the apps, right? But, um, you know, like, what are your recommendations, mm-hmm. you know, when you get questions about these things, are, are, are there um, things that you guide the parents with, uh, through? Mm-hmm. Right. So I would say my number one thing I would say is that, like, every family has its own kind of policy and rule that works for them, right? So there's no one rule that I would say, don't do this or don't do that. It, it's really unique to each family and your particular child, Right. And so, you know, listen, we're, the, the reality is we're living in, in a situation right now where like kids are watching more TV, they're on, they're on screens, they're playing video games, they're stuck in doors. Like, I think we have to recognize that right now, like nobody is sort of at their baseline level of functioning and that's okay. And so, you know, parents who feel terrible that their kids are on a screen all day. I mean, some of it is we just have to be kind of more compassionate with ourselves and our kids that this is just a very unique time. It's really difficult. And and it's, this is not, this is not usual. And so I think allowing more flexibility in terms of technology right now, um, because again, we just, our kids don't have a lot of outlets. And I think the thing you have to think about is why is your kid using your child using that particular device or outlet? I think most of the time it's for connecting right? So it's trying to connect to people. They're feeling very isolated from their friends, um, from the outside world, and it's a way for them to connect, or it's also a way for them to like escape. And I think if we understand that and then find ways to replace it or add to that, so different ways of escaping, different ways of connecting, not just through technology, but so if your child is using 
their phone mostly to connect with people. Okay, that's fine. Now let's add other ways of connecting. Maybe that means planning a play date for them outside where you feel comfortable. Maybe it means, um, you know, going somewhere to a public park, inviting their friends. So I think it, we can't take these things away for that, from them without necessarily replacing it with something else that's serving the same function. Right. So the, and the other thing I would think about is just, you know, recognizing that kids are going to be using devices more now. Right. But also trying to have a little bit of a routine, I think in place. Right. So it's not okay. I don't think it's healthy for a child to be on their, you know, video game for like six hours late at night. So I think you want to try to maintain somewhat of a schedule Um, You want to be flexible with the devices and then you just want to be creative about finding other ways that they can get that same purpose or function from the devices in other parts of their life. Yeah, no, I, uh, I totally agree with you. I think um, especially elementary and middle school school kids too, like they really need uh, the peer relationship. And unfortunately um, in, in middle school, I think a lot of times that is the way they interact with each other, um, especially in this pandemic era. And and one of the things I clinically in my office talk about when parents talk about it, elementary school, where you know, if try, prior to pandemic, we we talked about well, maybe not having the phone, but mm-hmm. you know, like um, having more outdoor space and having play dates. But for middle school kids, um, even without the pandemic, sometimes I'll say, well, um, maybe she, you guys can come family can come together and talk about what it means to have a phone and what are the things that he can't do or and shouldn't do. And um, here are the consequences mm-hmm. that we pl- place in if you do, uh, you know, abide, not abide by this rule. Um, uh, and so it's kind of like, well, I mean, in, in certain cases, I do do the contract. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, um, people who, who do need to see my, me in the clinical setting, but I mean, it's, it's, it's like any other thing, decisions in the family life where you can have a discussion with the kiddo. Um, I think the key is to involve the child, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, decision-making process, uh, in the decision-making process so that, um, the kiddo feels like he has the agency Mm -hmm. in what he can do with the phone, I think, or screen time. Um, Right. Right. You know, I think I think that's really hard sometimes when it's the only communication um, that they're going to have with their children and right. their friends. Yeah. Right. Right. But I mean, do you also see like, um, like you know, I, I see a lot of like kids. Um, I mean, I my clinical I'm, I'm sure you do the same, but I see the skewed um, population because they're mm-hmm. coming into psychiatric clinic. But a lot of them have had have been um, victims of cyberbullying, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like a whole nother issue that a lot of the parents never experienced right. because we never had it right, <laughs> um, right. as, as children. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think it, th- that's also one of the uh, par- portion where education is needed for both parents and the children. Yeah. And I think kind of going back to what you said, like, you know, make it like a, you know, I think if you're allowed, if you, if your child gains the privilege of having these devices or technology, right, that part of that could also be like a way for also to increase communication with your child is like, have your child show you and teach you 
the apps that they're going to download, the things that they do on it, right? That, that it becomes a very transparent thing where you know what they're doing on it, you know what they use, that, and it doesn't have to be, you know, that, and listen, sometimes they want to share that with you, right? Because that's part of their life. And so if you take an interest in it in a way that it's not like they're getting in trouble, but hey, let me see what are some of the things you're going to do with your phone? Like, let's, can you, can you teach me how it works? Like, what do you do with this? Right. So, and it becomes like a normal part of, I think your conversation, right. So that it's not a mystery what they're doing on it. And they also feel comfortable going to you eventually, if for example, they're getting cyber bullied or something happens that because this is something that you have on in an ongoing way, been talking to them about that you are already involved in the process, whether you're like you're literally looking at their phone or not. So I think it's really kind of creating a space where you guys are, as you're saying, like using this together and talking about it together and sharing it um, so that they can readily go to you when they need you. And then it's the same skills that I would say with, with bullying, right? You, you have to teach your kids how to deal with conflict and how to deal with difficult people, how to deal with bullies right? How do you stand up to them? How do you deal with them? So these are all like those social emotional skills that we've been, that you will hopefully have been reinforcing all this time. And how, and when to know when to ask for help. Right. Yeah. I think that's also a piece that was, I think, very difficult for Asian American children sometimes. Um, um, who, who to ask for help? Mm-hmm. Like, Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's been very, um, I've seen a lot of kids who don't want to talk about it because they don't have a trusted adult right. they can go to. Right. Yeah. Right. And maybe even saying to them, then if, if you can't come to me about it, let's, let's come up with somebody, maybe it's an older cousin or somebody that if you're in trouble, you can go to that person, no questions asked, right? You're not going to, I'm not going to be mad at you about that, but that's like something we've decided, right? Um, just because it's more important for us as parents to know they have someone to go to. It doesn't have to be us. Yeah, I think that's a really hard piece for a lot of parents. I mean, obviously, you and I have a small children, but, um, and I can see that happening to my husband. Um, <laughs> he's a very involved uh, dad, a uh, girl dad. But, um, uh, you know, like when the kids become like, you know, they're um, pre-adolescent or pre-pubertal or going into the adolescence, sometimes there are topics they just don't feel like they want to talk to your parents about. And it's not about your relationship with your children. It's more just they're going into that developmental stage mm-hmm. where they want um, some life away from mm-hmm. the parents. Right. But I think um, I've had um, families and even friends who had a really hard time letting that happen because, you know, I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure it feels like your child is getting away from you mm-hmm. and growing mm-hmm. up. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it is our job to, as a parent, to let that happen so that they can grow. I know, I know, I, I'm sure it's going to be really hard for me. <laughs> right. And I think, um, you know, I think what happens is like, listen, our relationship with our kids have to constantly evolve depending on the stage of our child. So the way we are with our four-year-old is, and the relationship we have with our four-year-old is not going to be how we are with them when they're eight versus 12 or 16. And if you get stuck in one way of being with them and you never grow as they get older, the relationship isn't going to work, right? So you see a lot of, I see a lot of, um, you know, 
students, I guess adults now young coming. Adults. To, yeah, yeah, young adults, Asian American, telling me that they they their parents still like yell at them, or they're still fearful of their parents, and their parents still tell them what to do. And it's like that that was a great relationship when you were like eight. That worked when you were eight, but it doesn't work when you're 24. It doesn't work when you're 16. It doesn't even work when you're 12, right? So well, I think well, it, we, does, it also doesn't work when you're 35 and married <laughs> and have your children. Right, right. Yeah. So I think our job as parents, um, and it's really hard, but we need to continue to evolve our relationship with our kids and meet them where they're at. And sometimes that means taking steps back. And sometimes that means moving, taking steps forward. But if we don't evolve with them, then it will, the relationship will never grow. But we need to adapt to them depending on where they are, I think, developmentally. Yeah, no, I think that's a really hard concept for a lot of people because you just want your child to be like the baby. And I, sometimes I always tell my three-year-old, like, I know you're a big girl, but you're my baby forever. And he's like... <laughs> I'm a big girl, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I think that's also um, what you're talking about. You know, uh, growing with the, your child um, and giving them space and and get closer if needed to. I think it's the boundaries um, and um, you know giving them the right boundaries where you also don't cross that boundaries as much. And mm -hmm. that's very, very, very crucial and important, especially in Asian American families, because our boundaries are a little bit different, um, a little bit more enmeshed than um, let's say white American families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I think that's something that we have to be very cognizant um, of when we're raising our children. Right. Especially when we've been raised also, right? Because mm -hmm. depending on how we've been raised, we might then do the same thing with our, our, you know, so if you had rigid boundaries with your parents, you might be that way with your kids. So it's also like being very aware of what kind of boundaries we ourselves had with our parents, right? Mm -hmm. And then how we want to have with our own children. Yeah, I think it's, it's a kind of a dilemma um, in that, you know, it's a very specific dilemma in that we're Korean and American. And it's one of those like very many things that kind of um, conflict each other mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the two cultures blending in, in our lives. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think in Korean culture, the boundaries are very uh, unclear and mm -hmm. we are very a lot closer. Whereas in American system, you have to be the independent being with very clear boundaries. So how do we navigate that is it is very uh, person oriented, family oriented. Right. Right. Uh, right. And it um, but also something that a lot of me included sometimes uh, we, we struggle with. Yeah. And I think, you know, the key is just boundaries have to be flexible. I think because right, I think it, it, because it's always going to change. And if we just stick to one way of doing something, I think that's where the problems occur. But if if our boundaries are flexible enough that they can always adapt to change, then it can just kind of, it's like a rubber band, right? It can expand when it needs to, it can contract, it sort of just moves with whatever kind of happens. And I think that that's sort of, I, I try to keep that in mind when I think about like my own relationships with my kids, like how can I be flexible in my relationship with them? Oh, this is so awesome, Angela. Uh, like I can talk to you forever um, and ask you all the questions <laughs> I want. And we talk shop, right? Uh, that's right. 
Um, okay, so um, but I know um, we're getting to the ne uh, end, but um, every time we have uh, somebody come um, as a guest, we also want to um, ask um, you about your Korean American parenting. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you are raising, you know, um, like well, tricultural <laughs> <laughs> children. Um, and um, what it, what do you envision in your family in the future? And how do you what's your hopes in terms of like building their identity and you know, um, in terms of ha uh, having a Korean American mom and a, ta a uh, Taiwanese uh, American dad, Chinese, and, yeah, Chinese, Chinese, yeah, Chinese American dad, and also um, being an, uh, an American, right? Right. Because that is also a part of that. Um, is there? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. No, you know, that's like a really hard question that mm -hmm. I really need to like. Like, I don't even know that I have any kind of answer about. Like, I think I'm still constantly in the process of like thinking about that and trying to be like more mindful like sometimes I forget that my kids are like half Chinese or I, I don't even really like think about that I'm just like you know and and I, I think of them sometimes a lot as like they're just like Asian American but but I do want like I want to make sure that they are you know connected to both cultures with the Chinese culture the Korean culture and the American culture but it's really hard to try to figure out how to like do that in a mindful way. I mean, there's obvious things I think like easiest is like food, right? So they know a lot about Korean food um, or with Chinese traditions, like, you know, they just had like New Year's, right? Like there's a lot of, I guess those like concrete ways, but sometimes I think about, um, you know, I guess more abstractly like that. I don't know how aware they are yet because they're little about how different they may be from other kids and also how, alike they are from people who look like them right and so I think it's like trying to figure out um, a way to raise them so they're aware of their differences but that they don't feel so out of place all the time um, so even like thinking about where we were going to move like I wanted to be I want I chose a place that was culturally diverse but I also didn't want it to be like where it's all Asian people and then my children grow up in a world thinking that everyone is Asian and they're just like everyone else. So it's kind of like trying to figure out that balance where they can understand and feel connected to people like them, but also recognize that we're living in a world where there's a lot of differences and you're not always going to be in the majority. And sometimes you're going to have to be, you know, kind of in a, in a more of a marginalized space and like how to live through that. So, you know, it's 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 a process I'm like still trying to figure out. You know, I really don't have yeah, a lot no, of answers. I mean, no, I mean I think it's it's the exact uh, reason why we started this podcast because there are so many questions and a kind of added burden. I, well, I don't want to say burden, added like questions and um, answers that we want as a Korean American parent um, because we are looking out for our children. That some you know people who are a majority of this. A country might not have to think about right mm -hmm. so um that's that's why we wanted to make the space happen mm -hmm. um well yeah <laughs> okay finally <laughs> any tips for other korean american parents that you can give us i think um, it's the same tip that i tell all parents right now which is like really just be kind to yourself like you know i think we just have to like constantly and it's, i have to remind myself that too sometimes because you know oh, i yeah. get frustrated sometimes with my kids or myself or, you know, your husband. And, and so I have to just remember like this again, that we are in like really unusual times. 
this is a really hard time. Like we just have to modify our expectations about what thriving is. So, so, you know, what thriving pre-pandemic looks like versus what it is now, like I think most of us are probably thriving. So we sort of just have to be very, I think, gentle on ourselves about how we're doing and, and recognizing that in our kids and in ourselves, really. No, that, that that was really helpful. I mean, I would take that into my heart too, because I do need that. <laughs> um, but Angela, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and like, I think every word that came out of your mouth was like pearls of wisdom <laughs> today. <laughs> I mean, like music to my ear, literally. Oh. Um, but um, it was really nice to reconnect. Yeah. Um, and thank you for giving us a lot of advice. Um, about you know our children and your um thank you for sharing your story um and i hope that we get to connect again yeah thank you so much for having me i'd love to join anytime again in the future um if you guys want to listen to me again go on and on but yeah this was great thank you and it's a wonderful also venue you have for korean american parents to be able to come to this podcast that's great Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Korean American Parenting Podcast. I want to thank our guest and for you for joining us today as we share our stories and our perspectives along our own Korean American parenting journeys. Follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Korean American Parenting and be sure to check out our website, KoreanAmericanParenting.com to learn more about the podcast, about us, and about our community. Please take a moment to rate and review this episode if you are listening to us on Apple and share this episode and this podcast with a friend or two in your life who you think would benefit from listening to us. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We wish you all the health and happiness as we go along our parenting journeys together. And we'll see you next time on the Korean American Parenting Podcast.